Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us today, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and uh, I'm super excited to be with you today. As we continue in this series we started just a few weeks ago called Confronting Christianity. And in this series, we've been wanting to look at some of the questions that maybe you as a Jesus follower, or if you're here or listening in and you're not a Jesus follower, maybe there are questions you've asked before too. Um, there are all the questions we're going to be looking at in this series are coming from a book called Confronting Christianity by a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. We've been using her book kind of as a as a guideline for our sermon series. And all of these questions, whether you've asked them or not, they're questions that I believe our culture are asking and potentially people you work with may be asking about God, about faith, and about Christianity. And so these questions are really important for us to examine. And so today we're going to dive right on in. Today the question we are going to be looking at is this question. Is there really only one true faith? Is there really only one true faith? Maybe you've asked that question before, or maybe you know someone who's asked that question. And it could be phrased differently. Um, it could be, hey, is, there, is, is one faith really uh, the only way? You know, couldn't all faiths be somewhat equal? You know, aren't there uh, different ways to, to get to God? That's kind of other ways you could frame that question. Now, my wife Amanda and I, we live over in Ephrata, and for a long time, uh, coming over to GFC, we'd go under 222, and then we'd cut across a railroad to get over here to New Holland. And for a long time, they had that construction there uh, right by Walmart. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, a lot of you do. Uh, they were having that construction there. So for a long time, I've been taking back roads to get to GFC. But occasionally, I'd be going on a back road, and then, oh, there's construction on this back road. So then I'd have to find another back road. And occasionally, it would take me 10, 15-plus uh, minutes to get here to GFC. But no matter what road I took, all roads eventually led to GFC, all right? I could always find my way here, no matter how long it took. And that's kind of a way that people, when they ask this type of question, they kind of pose it as, well, don't all roads lead to God? And I think that's a really intriguing question. I think it's a good question. And again, maybe you've asked that type of question before, maybe you haven't. But there are some famous people who have definitely thought that, you know what? All roads definitely lead to God. And I have a couple quotes for you from people you may, you may know about. The first one is a man named Gandhi. He says, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. All right, so Gandhi's saying, hey, all the great religions in the world, they're all basically the same. Just be faithful to what uh, your religion calls you to do, and it's just as valid as this other religion over here. Another famous person, uh, Oprah Winfrey, she once said this. She said, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. So this idea, this question, is there really only one true faith? It is a really profound question and one that whether you're a Jesus follower or not, I think we need to wrestle with because there are people in our society who are definitely wrestling with that, and who definitely subscribe to this idea that, you know what, it doesn't matter truly what you believe. As long as you're faithful to it and you're a good person, all roads lead up the same mountain. And I want to give a name to this, uh, to this view, to this idea, so that we can talk about it a little more today. And the name of this view is an idea called pluralism. Pluralism. 
Pluralism is basically this view that there's validity in all religions or that all roads lead up the same mountain. You know, if you are uh, over here, if you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or you're a Buddhist or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, as long as you're faithful to what you're called to, to do, as long as you're faithful to what you believe, it's all going to the same place. This idea of pluralism uh, has the idea that, you know, no religion or no worldview has monopoly on all the truth. We all only have part of the truth. And we're all going up the same mountain. The pluralist, someone who believes that, you know, all roads lead up to the same mountain, they would reject this idea that, you know, you can't say your way is right and this way is wrong. They would say, you know what, you can't make an exclusive truth claim. You have to be inclusive because all roads are going the same way. Does that make sense? That's, that's what a pluralist worldview uh, would be. They would say, we all have to be inclusive. Your truth is your truth, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and it's all partially true, and it's all going the same way. And there's a famous story that helps encapsulate this, uh, this thinking, this type of worldview called pluralism. And it's a famous story. It's a story about an elephant. A story about an elephant and a bunch of blind men in a village. So the way that this story goes is there once was an elephant that wandered into a village full of blind men. And all the blind men, they, they hear something walk into their village and they walk up to it. They, they kind of stumble up to it and they each start petting it and trying to figure out what is this thing that stumbled into our village. And one man, he says, I know what this is. This is a snake. And he's really holding the trunk of the elephant. Another man's like, what are you talking about? He's petting the side of the elephant. He's like, this is huge. It can't be a snake. This is a wall. Another guy is bent down, and he's holding onto the leg, and he says, this is a tree. Another guy, he's at the back end, and I feel bad for this guy, but he's, he's holding the tail, and he's like, this can't be a tree. This is a rope. And then there's another guy still at the front, and he, gets, he, he feels something sharp in his side. He's like, ah, oh, no, this is a spear. And really, it's the tusk of the elephant. And there's a picture there uh, for you to kind of that encapsulates this idea of pluralism. Where the, in this idea that all the blind men they have part of the truth, right? They all are feeling the same elephant, and so they all come to different conclusions about what it really is. And so, uh, who's right? Well, the this story is trying to represent they're all partially right. It's all one elephant but no one has all of the truth. And so they need to work together. They can't um, make these exclusive claims because they're all partially right. And so I want us to, to dive into what the Bible says because the pluralists, if they were asked the question, is there really only one true faith? They would say, no, you, that can't be true. There can't be just one true faith because all faiths are equally valid. And so I want to examine, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible make exclusive truth claims that say, hey, either the Bible is right or it's wrong? Or does it make claims that could be inclusive to other beliefs? And so we're going to go right to the very first sentence of the Bible where a truth claim is made. And uh, if you have read the Bible before, you know this passage. It's famous. It's Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you know when the Bible was written back in the ancient Near East uh, a few thousand years ago, 
the other surrounding nations of the time, uh, they also had their own creation accounts, their own stories of how did the world and how did humanity get here. But the, the story that, that God's people um, uh, uh, in Genesis, it, it is unique compared to those other ancient Near East accounts because in those other accounts, there wasn't one God who created everything. There were many gods who created everything. And in Genesis, we have one God created creating everything with order and beauty. And usually in those ancient Near East accounts, there's many gods, and it's full of violence, where to create humanity, one god has to kill another god and use their blood and use the dirt, to, and it's just, it's just chaotic and it's messy. And Genesis is completely different. There's one god creating order and beauty and goodness in the world. And so in the ancient Near Eastern context that the Bible came out of, you have this claim that there is one God amidst all these other people that believed in many gods. And that's a view called polytheism, when you believe in multiple gods. And so right there, we have the Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context going against these other claims in the ancient Near East. And they can't really fit together because there's either one God or there's many gods. You can't really fit that together. If you know the story of the Bible and you fast forward, you know that God's people were in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. And God brought his people out of Egypt, which Egypt was a polytheistic um, uh, uh, group of people. They believed in many gods. And God brought them out of Egypt and he saved them. He brings them through the Red Sea and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he gives them the law, which is the means of, hey, this is how you can have a relationship with me. And the first law in the Ten Commandments is this from Exodus 20, verse 3. He says, you must not have any other God but me. And so again, we have God in that ancient Near Eastern context drawing his people out of the other religious systems of that time. Say, hey, there's only one God. You can't be part of these people who are worshiping many gods because there's only one and it's me and you have to worship me alone. And so when we see in the Old Testament, we see some of these exclusive truth claims that can't really mesh together with the ancient Near Eastern context that the people were in. But what if we fast forward to Jesus? What if we move forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament? What are some of the claims that the New Testament makes specifically about Jesus? Could, could Jesus be one path that leads up the same mountain as other world religions? Could he just be one puzzle piece in the grander puzzle piece of ultimate reality that pluralism believes in? Well, if we open up uh, John chapter 1, we see this. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, we see this. It says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word became human and made his home among us. And it, uh, the, that word there, Word, that's capitalized, it's referring to Jesus. And so the claim is, hey, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God in the beginning and God himself became a human being. That's John 1, verse 1, and then verse 14. So that's one claim we have. If we fast forward to John chapter 14, we see Jesus making a claim about himself. And he says this in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Notice he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, he says. He doesn't put himself up alongside the other 
belief systems of the day. He, he makes a claim that I am the only way. If we go to another story of Jesus in Mark uh, chapter 2, it's a story of the paralyzed man. And perhaps you've heard this story before. It's an awesome story about Jesus. And in this story, if you haven't heard it before, Jesus is in a home and he's teaching to a bunch of people. And the home is so filled with people that people are having a hard time getting in and seeing Jesus. And there's a group of friends that walk up to this crowd and they're, they're carrying their paralyzed friend. And they desperately, desperately want to get him in front of Jesus because they want Jesus to heal him. And so they can't get through the crowd, so they have the brilliant idea to get up on the roof and to create an opening in the roof, which, just imagine the story, like how weird and crazy that would be if you were in that house and you see that happen. That would just be so cool and strange at the same time. But they lower their paralyzed friend down into the home, and this is the encounter that Jesus has with this paralyzed man in Mark 2, verses 5 to 11. He says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. So Jesus here, he's claiming that he has forgiven this paralyzed man of his sins. And these religious leaders are taken back by that. What in the world? But Jesus proves that he can forgive this man his sins because he then heals this man of being paralyzed. And notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke the religious leaders for thinking only God can forgive sins. That's a true statement. Only God can forgive sins. What Jesus was rebuking in them was the fact that their conclusion about who Jesus was was wrong. They didn't think he was God in the flesh. But Jesus was God in the flesh. And as being God... He had the authority to forgive sins. And he proves that then by healing the paralyzed man. So here we have a claim, Jesus himself showing that, hey, I am God in the flesh and I can forgive sins. One more claim from Jesus, and this is in John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. And in this verse, we have Jesus talking to a bereaved woman who has just lost her brother. And will you read this with me? John chapter 11, verse 25 to 26. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. So if you know the story, Jesus, he's talking to this woman, and then he does go eventually and heal her brother, raise him from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And so here we have in these verses, we have Jesus, he's talking to this woman who's just lost her brother, and he says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He basically tells her, I have eternal life in me. And then he tells her, anyone who believes in me will, will live even after they die. So he claims, I have eternal life, and if you believe in me, I can give you that eternal life. And so we have some claims here from the New Testament and from Jesus himself. We have some pretty big claims, don't we? We have Jesus 
being claimed by the New Testament to be God, to be God in the flesh. We have the claim that he can, that he's the only way to God the Father. We have the claim that he can forgive sins. We have the claim that in him is eternal life, and that eternal life can be given to others who believe in him. And those are some pretty big claims, right? Those are some pretty audacious claims. I mean, if I stood up here and I made those claims about myself, you'd probably all look at me like I was crazy, right? I mean, those claims are so huge. There was a a writer, a famous writer in the 20th century named C.S. Lewis who talked about the claims of Jesus, and he talked about how Jesus couldn't just be another good moral teacher because his claims are so big, they're so earth-shattering, there's only three possibilities for who Jesus is. Either one, Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's actually Lord. Because think about what Jesus is saying. He's telling people that he is God in the flesh. He can save you from your sins and he can give you eternal life. Either Jesus knows what he is saying is wrong and so he's lying to everybody. Or Jesus knows, doesn't know what he's saying and so he's crazy and a lunatic. Or Jesus knows exactly who he is and he's making claims about the fact that he is Lord, the fact that he is God. And so we have here in the Bible, we have in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in Jesus himself, making exclusive truth claims. Claims that either he is right and the Bible's right, or he's wrong and the Bible is wrong. Based on Jesus' own claims, he doesn't leave room for any other option. He doesn't leave room for, hey, they could be right too, and they could be right too, and we're we're all going the same way. He doesn't leave any room for that. Because he says, I am the way, I am the resurrection, the life. And so Christianity can't just be one road among many roads. They don't all lead up the same mountain. And I think if we ask this pluralist idea that all roads lead up the same mountain, if we just think about what a road is, we can start to realize that, you know, it doesn't make sense that we're all leading up the same mountain. Because what is a road? A road is a pathway that leads to a certain destination, right? A road is a pathway that leads to some specific destination, place you want to get to. And when you look at the different roads that the different world religions are heading on and the different destinations they're heading to, they're so drastically, drastically different. In Islam, the road you're walking on as a Muslim, you're you're trying to earn your salvation by following the five pillars of Islam. It's a road of doing good things, of following the five pillars of Islam, of being faithful in that way. In Christianity, we believe the road to salvation is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. In Buddhism, they believe that you're on this pathway, you're on this road of seeking enlightenment by denying yourself and getting rid of your own desires. Those are three vastly different roads. When it comes to the destinations in Islam, they believe there's one God, Allah. As Christians, we believe in the triune, the one triune personal God. In Hinduism, they believe there are millions of gods. And in some forms of Buddhism, they don't even believe there is a God. It's more atheistic. And then atheism, which is another worldview, believes there is no God. And so... How do you mesh all of these things together? 
all of these world religions make truth claims that are exclusive, where they say it's either this, you're right, or you're wrong. And so all roads can't lead to God. All roads can't lead up the same mountain. It would be like if you, if I asked you to do a puzzle, but I gave you puzzle pieces from 10 different puzzle sets. I said, all right, make one big, good, cohesive picture. Fit these pieces together. How would you have to do that? You'd have to manipulate the puzzle pieces. You'd have to cut certain edges off and make them fit together. You'd probably have to draw on it and paint it or something to make it look cohesive because it couldn't match together. It couldn't fit together. And we can go a step further. I think if we examine um, what the three major monotheistic religions in the world claim about Jesus' crucifixion, you'll see how they can't mesh together. So I want to look at what Christians and what Muslims and what Jews all say about Jesus' crucifixion. Because they all believe Jesus was a real person. But they all make different claims about Jesus' death. As Christians, we believe in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's pretty central to our faith as Jesus followers, correct? Yeah, the Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, we're fools and we should be pitied. He talks about how if if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that, that this is all shams. It's not true. Jesus rising from the dead is the center of our faith because in that he, again, proved he was God and he conquered the power of sin and death over our lives. And in that we have our hope in what he has done. And so if he hasn't raised from the dead, what we believe is really shaken. Jewish people, what they believe about Jesus' death is they believe he died and he stayed dead. Muslims, what they believe is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. It appeared that he died on the cross and that he was actually taken up to heaven to be with Allah. And so we have three vastly, vastly different views on who Jesus is, on what his death looked like. And that's something that uh, Tim Keller talks about in his book, The Reason for God. He at one point, Tim Keller, if you know him, he, was an author, he is an author and a pastor up in New York City. He was asked to be on a panel discussion at a college with a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam. And they were talking about uh, di- the differences in religion. And so in his book, The Reason for God, he talks about it. And he talks about how they were having a good, respectful, courteous discussion. And at one point, this is what he writes in his book. He says, We all agreed on the statement. Remember, this is a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and Tim Keller, a Christian pastor. He said, we all agreed on the statement. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The bottom line was, we couldn't all be equally right about the nature of God. And so that, that's, that's Tim Keller agreeing with uh, a rabbi and a Muslim imam, the fact that they couldn't all be right. Just one, one of them could be right, but they all couldn't be right. And so kind of going to this idea of pluralism, this belief that, hey, uh, no one can have all the truth, you can only have part of the truth, this idea that all religions are valid, this idea that all roads lead up the same mountain, and this 
this story of the elephant and the blind men, uh, just, just two comments. One, based on what we've seen about Christianity and other religions, I just I cannot believe that this pluralistic idea has any grounding. Because the destinations and or the, the roads and the destinations that all of these religious and worldview beliefs say, they're all so drastically different. And in order to mesh them together, you have to seriously misunderstand them or or purposefully manipulate them together. They're just so drastically, drastically different. And the second reason is this. Um, when someone who is a pluralist, whether they call themselves that or not, and they say, you know what, your truth is your truth, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, we're all heading up the same mountain. This I, And this story of the elephant and the blind man, I think it drastically backfires on itself. Because here's the thing, in this idea of pluralism, in claiming to say you can't hold any truth or you can't hold all the truth, in claiming to say your worldview can't be right, we're all right, in trying to say you can't make exclusive truth claims, the pluralist is saying I hold all the truth because I know your truth is part of it and your truth is part of it and your truth is part of it. So while claiming to say you can't hold all the truth, they're saying they do hold all the truth. While saying you can't make an exclusive truth claim, you can't be right or wrong, they're making an exclusive truth claim about the fact that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And so, does that make sense? The, the whole idea kind of flips on itself. It, doesn't, it can't really mesh together logically. And so all worldviews, I believe, even a pluralist worldview, makes exclusive Truth claims, makes claims that they're either right or they are wrong. And so when we ask this question, is there really only one true faith? I believe the answer has to be yes. There can only be one true faith. Not all worldviews can be right. Not all worldviews can be partially right. And yet there are a lot of people in our society that attest to this kind of view. This idea that, well... Your truth is your truth, and your truth is your truth, and we're all going up the same mountain. That, that is a common held thing. And, and I want to ask, why is that? Why is that? I think a lot of people who hold to this worldview have a very genuine desire. And I think their desire is based around this idea. Their desire is, I want to live at peace with people around me. I want to be... I want to respect other people. I want to be respected. I want to tolerate them, and I want them to tolerate me. And so I want to create an environment around me that is an environment of peace and love that's welcoming to people who are different from me. And I think that's a very genuine desire in people who hold this, or at least many people, or the people I've met who hold this worldview. Um, there was a guy I worked with at New Holland Coffee Company a few years ago when I was a barista there. Uh, I'll call him Joe. And Joe had was a really cool guy. I really liked talking to him. He was so nice. He was so kind to everyone there. And uh, he thought it was great that I was a Christian. He had no issues with me being a Christian or with me um, holding to my beliefs. He thought that was so cool, the fact that I believed in Jesus and wanted to follow Jesus with my whole life. And we would talk about our beliefs occasionally. And, and one time I just asked him flat out, hey, hey Joe, what, what, what do you believe? 
And he just, he kind of hemmed and hawed and was like, you know, I kind of, I'm not quite sure. I kind of believe in different things. I believe in some in Christianity. I think there's some cool stuff there. And he said, I believe also in Greek mythology. I think the gods and goddesses thing is kind of cool. And he, he kind of went on just talking about kind of picking and choosing from different things, saying, I see this here and it's cool and I like it. I see this here, it's cool and I like it. And so he's like, yeah, in the end, we're all just, we just got to be good. We got to love people and care about people. And that's what Joe genuinely wanted. He wanted to care about other people. He wanted to care about me. He wanted to have an environment of peace and respect. And so he was trying to create that through this idea of like, you believe what you want, I'll believe what I want, and we're all cool. We're all going to the same place. And so one time I remember I asked him, I was talking to him about his beliefs, and I said, all right, um, Joe, what what about, like that's that's cool that you believe those things. I said, what if there is another person who claims in their belief system, they claim that something is right that you think is wrong. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, well, what if there was a belief system where they said, hey, we should kill these certain kinds of people and get rid of them, and our world would be better without those types of people. I said, would you look at them and say their truth is their truth and they're, they're right? And he was like, I'm not sure. I said, yeah, well, what, about, what about ancient religions where they, they committed child sacrifice? Where, where they would literally sacrifice their children to different deities. Would, would that be a, an okay truth to hold? Or, or I said, what about other religious cults like Jim Jones's cult, if you've heard about him, the People's Temple, who back in the 1970s, he led uh, around 900 people and over, three, over 300 of them children, but he led 900 ish people to commit suicide in the name of their beliefs. So I said, Joe, these other people, they claim things that they were right, and what their right led them to do was to hurt other people. I said, how does that mesh with what you believe? And, and he didn't really have a response. He hadn't ever really thought about it because he just wanted to live in a world where everyone got along. And I, I admired him for that because as a Jesus follower, I desire very much the same thing in many ways. I desire a world of peace and whatnot. But Joe couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that, you know what? Maybe some people are right and maybe some people are wrong, and yet we can still live together in peace. He thought the only way for us to create a peaceful world is to say we're all right and to just deal with that. But I think that creates more problems in the end. And so maybe, maybe you're sitting here today and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're listening in and you're not a Christian and you're just struggling, uh, wondering which faith is true or, or maybe you are a Christian and you're just struggling in your faith. And I want to share with you the fact that I believe that the, that the exclusive truth claims of Christianity are true. I believe that there is hope in this worldview. I believe that there are historical reasons to believe in Jesus. I believe that there are other uh, reasons to believe when it comes to the nature of the world, the way morality works and human consciousness and all sorts of things that point to the fact that there has to be a God. And I believe Christianity is the best worldview when it comes to explaining the world we live in. But even more than that, maybe you're sitting here and you're really struggling with this idea of exclusivity because I think that's, that's the problem a lot of people in our society have is they don't want people to say, I'm right, you're wrong, because they think that divides people. 
And people have been divided over things. But I want you to know that I believe the exclusive truth claims of Christianity actually have good reasons and good motivation to create, to help create that peaceful world we all desire. I believe Christianity, believing in Jesus, I have believe I have more motivation to do that than any other worldview. Because at the center of what Christians believe is that there is a God, and he's a God who claims to be a God of love. And not only does he claim to be a God of love, he's a God who shows that he is a God of love by coming to earth. And he came to earth and he lived like us and he experienced the, the craziness of a human life. And then he experienced a horrible, terrible death on a cross. And he did it willingly for people, for you and for me. And he did it because he loves us. And now as Jesus followers, he commands us to love other people, to even love our enemies, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to put others before ourselves. I believe the Christian worldview is a worldview that motivates us and demands that we go out and try to create peace in our world. I believe it's a worldview that commands that, hey, we need to not cause division in our world, but we need to cause love and care in our world. And when it comes to the pluralist worldview, I don't see where the motivation is there, except for the fact that, well, I want that. I don't think that's a good motivation in the long run. But as a Jesus follower, there is true motivation to create that thing that I think a lot of people in our society want, which is to get along with others, to not have the headaches of division and have peace in our lives. And so as Jesus followers, if you're here today or you're listening in and you're a Jesus follower, I want to talk to to us for this last little bit and think about how can we, taking the fact that there is only one true faith and we believe that it is Jesus, how should that motivate us? How should that change us in our everyday lives? And I have three things. And the first one is this. I believe, one, that we should avoid arrogance that leads to apathy. Avoid arrogance that leads to apathy. Now, what do I mean by that? Avoid arrogance that leads to apathy. That seems like a strange first point. I think this is really critical or really crucial, and I don't think this is something we all might struggle with, but I'll say right off the bat, this is something I can struggle with. And so when I say avoid arrogance that leads to apathy, I'm really getting at this idea that sometimes as Jesus followers, I think we can get so locked in in trying to understand our worldview and gain knowledge about the truth that we become apathetic to the people around us. We get so locked in and I need to make sure that everything I believe is exactly right, that I I tune out the lost people in my life and I forget that, hey, while I'm trying to gain more truth about Jesus, I'm missing out on people who have no truth about Jesus. And I think that this can be a real struggle for people in any church. And again, I can struggle with this where I get so many questions about my faith and I start wrestling with it and I start reading about it and I start trying to understand every little nuance. And side note, I think that's, that's great that we do that. We need to better understand the things that we believe. I think that's so important. But sometimes we can slip uh, too far to this side where we forget we have people in our lives, people around us, who don't know Jesus. 
And there's a story in John chapter 8 that I think really encapsulates this. Jesus, in John chapter 8, he's teaching. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders bring out a woman caught in adultery, and they throw her down before him. And they say, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery. We're going to stone her. And Jesus, he tells them, whoever is without sin should throw the first stone. And so picture this scene, this, this woman who has been caught in the act of a sinful thing. She's down probably crying, just waiting to be stoned. You have all these religious leaders ready to cast a stone at her. And there's Jesus saying, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw it. And one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. And Jesus is like, hey, where'd everyone go? Like, what happened? And she's like, they all left. And he says, I won't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And catch this, Jesus was the only one there who was without sin. If anyone had a right to judge someone for their sin, it was Jesus there. And yet, he showed her mercy. He didn't cast the first stone. Jesus was more concerned about helping this lost, hurting person than about getting everything exactly right. Was she in sin? Yes. And he told her to go and sin no more. He didn't just shake that off, but he also cared about her as a human being. And sometimes as people, again, myself included, I can become so fixated on being right that there's almost this arrogance in my faith. Well, my faith is right, and they're all wrong. And I become apathetic to the lost, hurting people in my life. And so, do you ever prioritize, as a Jesus follower here, do you ever prioritize being right over doing what's right? Do you ever miss out on opportunities to love lost people because we're so fixated on just trying to be, to know the truth and not share the truth. So that's the first one. Second one is this. I think we should be motivated to share Christ with others. I think that kind of goes without saying based off of what we just looked at. We need to be motivated to go share Christ with others. And Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, after his resurrection, in Matthew 28, do you remember what he tells his disciples to do? He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He commands his disciples to go share him with other people and to help other people come to know him. And I think there's something we need to remember. Jesus isn't calling us to save people. Jesus is calling us to share him with people. We can't save anybody. We were in need or in need of, that's not word. We were in need of saving. And so Jesus never says, hey, Andrew, go save this person. Jesus says, hey, go share me with them because I am their Savior and I can save them. And I think, I know for me, that has been such a freeing thought when I've thought about this idea of sharing my faith with other people, remembering, hey, I'm not responsible for how they, if they accept Jesus or not. That's not, that's not up to me. I'm not called to save them. I'm called to love them and to tell them about the one who can save them. That's, I think, a very different mindset. And I think it can be very freeing when thinking about opportunities in our life to share Jesus with people. And so as Jesus followers here today, what could that look like for you this week? What might those opportunities look like? I think they can come in all sorts of uh, different shapes and forms. Maybe, maybe there's a neighbor who lives next door or across the street from you. Maybe there's a coworker or a friend. You know, and maybe there's someone in your life who's asking a lot of questions. 
take them up on that. Those are, that that's awesome. If they're willing to engage you with questions about your faith, that's a clear open door. But maybe there is someone in your life who isn't asking questions. Well, maybe you start asking them questions. I think questions are some of the best ways for us to engage conversations with people. I know sometimes I can wait, just wait for that perfect opportunity. Like, all right, it's going to come. They're going to say something. I'm going to jump on, on it, and I'm going to have that you know, good Bible verse already for them, and I'm just waiting for it. Where I should step back and just get to know them and ask them a question. And as we get to know people, they start to get to know us, and their guard starts to get put down, and they get more comfortable with us. And that, I have found, has been the best way to witness to people is to get to know them. And as I get to know them, and I tell them about my life, and I'm honest about who I am and what I believe, and they realize, wow, you're, you're kind of a normal guy. It's like, yeah, I'm a normal guy. It creates opportunities for those deeper conversations. Now, maybe there's a family member in your life, or maybe, maybe instead of always looking for organic opportunities, maybe look for a specific regular opportunity, like volunteering, going to CrossNet, or going to some other ministry to help out there. On Wednesday nights, we have a number of volunteers who come out each week and they get to talk to these teens about Jesus. And it's awesome. And they're putting themselves in the spot to do that. And so I would encourage you to evaluate your life this week. Where are there opportunities in your life, either organically or purposely created, to talk to people about Jesus? And the last one is this. The last one is this. We need to be respectful of others' beliefs, but still seek to point them to Jesus. We need to be respectful of other people's beliefs, but still seek to point them to Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this. He says, And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. We can disagree with people, and still be their friend. People can believe differently from us, and we can still get along with them. Um, and I think we see this all the time in our lives, in trivial things. I mean, think about all the times you're talking to a friend or your spouse or someone, and you disagree about, hey, what movie should we watch? Or, hey, what restaurant should we go to? Or, hey, what music should we listen to? You can disagree, but still get along. Or you can go to even more personal things, like, hey, what football team do you like? All right? I like the Pittsburgh Steelers. Pastor Corey likes the Philadelphia Eagles. We can still be friends. Now, I'll be honest, it is a little harder to be friends with a Ravens fan. Um, we, just being honest, we can still be friends. We just probably won't watch football together. So if we can do that sort of thing, still be friends on these trivial things we can disagree on, I think we can still be friends and get along with people, even about deeper things, even deeper than football, like faith in Jesus, and what's in the life to come. And we should do it, as Peter says, with gentleness and respect. But we should always be ready for it. Because remember, the people we talk to, non-believers are not the enemy. They're captives of the enemy. We've all been created in the image of God, whether you are a Jesus follower or not. And so there are human beings who deserve to be respected because they've been created in God's image. And so we should be willing to talk with them, but we should do it with gentleness and respect. And so today, let's not stop sharing Jesus with people, but let's do it with gentleness and respect. And as to wrap up, I just want to look one more time at what Jesus said in John 14. 
He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus really is the only one true faith. He is our hope as Jesus followers, and he is the hope for the world. So let's go share him with others. We pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the fact that we can gather and that we can worship you. Thank you for making it clear that you are our hope. You can forgive us of our sins. In you is eternal life, and you offer that to us. And Lord, it's clear that you love us. If you didn't, you would never have died for us. So thank you for your love. May that motivate us today to go into our world, to share you with others, to love others the way that you first loved us. Amen.